Friday, August 30th, 2019, pre-Labor Day edition of On Iowa Politics. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Brett Hayworth of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. Ed Tibbetts of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Ed. Morning, James. Thomas Nelson of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. Aaron Murphy, Lee Newspaper State House Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. And Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. First up, winnowing the field. We spent a lot of talk about winning, winnowing the field of 2020 Democratic presidential hopefuls. That's 2020 as in the year, not the number of candidates. It's dropping slightly. Uh, following <laughs> the lead of Eric Swalwell, Jay Inslee, Seth Moulton, and John Higginlooper, uh, all household names, this past week's New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand dropped out. On the other hand, Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard is coming back to Iowa. Montana Governor Steve Bullock will be campaigning in Iowa the night of the Houston debate, because he won't be at the debate. And former Maryland Rep John Delaney has sent out a news release saying he's not quitting. But for those who didn't make the September debate, uh, what's the future? Some like Delaney and Steyer, I guess, have the personal wealth to continue um, and possibly qualify for the October debate. Ed, um, what about the rest of the field? (laughs) Well, you know, I don't think anybody knows right now. I mean, um, we know what the national polls say, um, that Biden, Warren, and Sanders seem to be in the top tier. Um, But as all, uh, you know, we all know that isn't necessarily a reflection of Iowa. I mean, it's obviously a better place to be than not. Um, And, you know, I I don't think the next debate with the 10 candidates um, will be, uh, you know, it'll be highly watched, but I'd be surprised if that forced too many candidates out of the race. Uh, I think there's, there's so much up in the air right now um, that uh, that it's hard to tell what's uh, what's going to happen next. I do think that because of that, we're going to see a lot of attention paid to Iowa. And, you know, there's five months to go before the caucuses, um, you know, the in-person caucuses. So, I, you know, I'm no surprise. I think that's going to be pretty busy. Well, that makes me wonder, Brett, uh, does each one of these announcements that a candidate is dropping out come as sort of a relief uh, not only to political reporters, uh, but to Democrats who are seem to be wearing themselves out going to all of the campaign events. Yeah, I, I mean, for the most part, I, I think it's a yes. Um, the, I, I've talked to people about that, and you know, it's it's always said with kind of a chuckle of, um, I know. In fact, I'm thinking of a couple that they try to be able to say the exact number of how many are in the the field. If it was you know 25 or 24 or 23, and and they, they, you know, they didn't exactly know that, and it kind of galled them that they didn't exactly, you know, that wasn't top of mind. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, what for the lesser polling candidates that come aren't drawing big numbers of people. You're going to get at least here in Woodbury County, the ones that I've seen, it's a lot of the strongholds of, of the, you know, the real longtime committed like county party type Democrats that are coming, and you know, they're not drawing in fresh faces. New people and and um, yeah, people they they want the field to be smaller to so they can kind of sift through it better and you know maybe mentally like you know you've eliminated people from they've eliminated people from their list of won't have them under consideration but it's it's a lot of it's a lot of events to juggle and um, you know a, a more I don't even know the word the, a more wrap your arms around the field sort of field is, is maybe what they've been looking for. I think it was Patty Judge told me a couple of weeks ago that uh, I was asking her about, you know, what will win in this field. And she said when people quit showing up at candidate events, you know, everybody has their, you know, top five or whatever yeah. it is. And when they 
pair that back to the top three, that's going to start winnowing the field. Um, not not to brag or toot my own horn or anything, but I, I think two weeks ago I uh, speculated that Kirsten Gillibrand would be the next person to drop out of this race. So uh, I'll give uh, uh, others a chance to make a prediction. Uh, Todd, any any thoughts on I, that? I, I honestly don't remember that. <laughs> I think we'll have to go back and check the tape. Yeah, I think I was on that podcast. I don't remember that either. <laughs> I, I don't – I don't know who is going to be next. I, I'm thinking, I'm tempted to say that maybe <laughs> Seth Moulton and Jay Inslee will drop out again mm. because dropping out is what gave them more, they got more attention <laughs> for dropping out than, than anything else It'll they become did. a regular thing. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, once again, I am not running for president. And then people say, well, that's too bad. He's a great governor. So, but maybe. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know, know the debate will, I, I, think the, I think the remaining candidates that aren't in the debate are, you know, some of them are candidates pursuing different issue areas. And, I mean, I just – they seem like a group of candidates. And I don't think Delaney – I mean, Delaney is going to – I think he's going to go until he till it's over, till, mm-hmm. till the caucuses at least. Maybe not, but he's – you know, he started – he was first, and mm-hmm. maybe he wants to be last. But uh, but I, I just I, – I, it's a group of candidates that I don't see, you know – I think their their staying power just by sheer will is probably more than more than some of the ones that have dropped out so far. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's interesting as we're having this discussion that we're coming up on Labor Day, which is the traditional start of the campaign season, uh, which seems like a quaint idea in this uh, era of continuous campaigns. Um, but. You know, we've got a lot of Democrats uh, out there running for the nomination. Now we have three Republicans who may be challenging the president for the GOP nomination. Um, so I think it's a good time to sort of take stock of this campaign. What do we know about the campaign? Uh, Joe Biden's leading in almost every poll. Does he have the nomination locked up? Or will uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren catch him and pass him? Um, has... Vermont Bernie Sanders' uh, time passed, uh, and, and if he doesn't get the nomination, will the Sanders revolutionaries, uh, some still smarting from 2016, um, you know, refuse to back the Democratic nominee? Um, uh, Aaron, uh, let's let, let's start with you. Um, thoughts on sort of the state of the race uh, as we come up on this uh, Labor Day kickoff? Well, I, I think we've seen the field kind of settle into tears um, uh, at this point anyways. And, and, and the three you mentioned um, are pretty clearly um, in the top tier. Joe Biden has led in almost every poll we see. I, I know people talk about the concerns people have about him and maybe some gaps that he did, some verbal gaps that he's had along the way, but, um, and, and, and so much of the national coverage you see about Joe Biden is kind of has a, a this tone of, you know, obviously, eventually the, the, the wheels are going to fall off of this thing. But but look, for, as, as I watch this, the, the guy's been the leader in every poll. <clears throat> Pardon me. And until he's not, I, he's got to be considered the front runner. And, and, and at this point, he still is. Now, now I, I think there is some opportunity in there. I'm, I'm not saying that. Uh, um, there's opportunity in there uh, when you talk to Democrats. Joe Biden, um, I think, feels like the safe choice to them 
feels like the one that they think has the best chance of beating Donald Trump, but I think there's still time and room for some of those other candidates to prove to Democrats, um, including here in Iowa, that um, that they can be that that person. Uh, but Biden's the leader. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have been consistently uh, the next two in the polls. So I think that's your your top tier. <clears throat> and then you have a group kind of bunched up there with Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, um, Cory Booker, <clears throat> and 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 that's the group that needs to see something happen uh, sooner than later. Those those are candidates that a lot of people like a whole lot. <clears throat> but it just hasn't, pardon me, just hasn't showed up in the polling, and um, and 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 we're kind of waiting on on those that group of candidates, someone in there to catch fire and maybe join that top tier. Aaron, uh, go get a shot of whiskey there, and and uh, Thomas, let's. Uh, yeah, thank <laughs> you, <laughs> Thomas. Before we hit the record button, we were talking about how a number of the candidates who won't be on the stage in Houston are going to be uh, in eastern Iowa that week uh, um, campaigning. Um, so is, is there still life for these folks, who, even if they don't get on the debate stage? Absolutely. I, you know, this, is, this next debate is the one that they haven't qualified for. There are going to be other debates, and there's still a chance for those, for those candidates like uh, Tulsi Gabbard and you know, Steve Bullock and John Delaney to make a comeback. Um, now, it's not something necessarily people always think is likely, but it's certainly possible, you know, that, you know, we could see them surging in the pool, have a viral moment or anything. You know, we could, you know, something could happen and something could happen to any of the top tier candidates that could maybe knock them out of the lead. And say something could come from their past that was unforgivable or maybe health problems happen. You know, the, I don't want to, you know, there, there's a whole slew of things that could come up and. Uh, it, and I think it's still I don't I think with a candidate like uh, Steve Bullock would be a strong candidate in any other race and you know any other time any other place Steve Bullock would probably be considered one of the front runners and I think um, it's kind of important to keep that in mind that a lot of the candidates that are out there are strong candidates this is just a lot of candidates are out right now there are twenty Democratic presidential candidates. And some of the some some people that would be uh, you know stronger candidates in other years are just not stronger candidates in this year. So maybe that that strength will come out in October or maybe the, even Labor Day weekend something will happen and we'll see Tulsi Gabbard uh, thrown into the limelight. So it's, it's always kind of important to keep that in mind, in my opinion. Yeah, I, if I can sort of pick up on this, I, you know, you, I, I think about this um, um, like, say, an Iowa caucus goer might. They're looking at all these candidates and say maybe they see Joe Biden in one lane and then uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders sort of as the progressives in the race. And maybe they have doubts about um, the electability of either. Maybe Warren and Sanders are, are too progressive. Maybe Biden um, has passed his prime and, and doesn't uh, have the enthusiasm. And maybe they're looking for an alternative. So, you know, I, I think among those the, that bunch of candidates, Buttigieg, uh, Kamala Harris, um, the others, there's some opportunity both in the debate and on the campaign trail to sort of make themselves the alternative um, to the Iowa caucus goer who may um, look at that top tier and still have doubts. Okay. Yeah, and I, 
that's uh, what Ed said is exactly what I was thinking. Uh, and one of the things that complicates that is that it's it, when you see polls like we're out this week with all you know like a long list of Democrats beating the president fairly handily, it's, it might be hard for some of those voters to get cold feet. There won't be anything that shows, well, you know, my candidate looks kind of weak against Trump. Maybe I should rethink this. Everybody looks really strong at this point, so there's no reason to <coughs> sort of jump ship. But I, I, you know, I don't, I don't always, you know, we always fight this battle with old, old battle plans. But I mean, you know, Sa um, uh, Warren, you know, maybe this, maybe if she ascends to the front runner status at some point this late this summer or fall, I mean, does she? become sort of a Howard Dean and then maybe a Kamala Harris becomes John Kerry that people <laughs> suddenly decide, well, Biden's in trouble, we're, we're getting rid of, you know, he's going down and maybe Warren's, you know, policies are not going to be popular. Who else can we look for? And, and like, as Ed said, maybe one of those candidates, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg becomes the, the, uh, the alternative. Brett, I want to come back to you um, being over there in, in the Republican quadrant of the state, I guess. Uh, we have three Republicans, uh, Mark Sanford, Joe Walsh, and William Weld, who uh, are have either declared that they're candidates for the Republican nomination or they're thinking about it. Um, our Erasmuson poll this week found that 92% of Republicans say it's likely Trump will be their party's nominee. 81% uh, say it's very likely. Um, do you get any sense at all um, that Trump has anything to worry about? Um, I, would, I would say not really. Um, um, there's, you know, so so there's these <clears throat> these new candidates that are that are coming for us from the Republican side, and and they're again they're hardly household names. Um, I mean, maybe Sanford is is somewhat more known, but but he certainly got baggage um, from his political past. Um, but no, I mean we over here. There's, I would say, pretty strong, substantial Trump support, and you know we we know about how the um, the um, uh, uh, tariffs have have not been uh, well well liked by by farmers, and how it's impacting their their bottom lines and their their markets and such. But when we're talking about the primary, and, we're, and here we're not talking about the general election, we're talking about a, a primary. Um, you know, Trump is is still well liked for his, you know, his his tell say it like it is, and you know, his and a lot of his policies, um, you know, on immigration and, and things, and 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 I, I don't see him being at risk. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to move on now. Um, when it be an official podcast, I guess, without a Steve King segment <laughs> this week, the Fourth District United States Rep uh, was criticizing the Chinese government treatment of Muslims, including force-feeding them pork, something you think would be widespread agreement on. Instead, the Western Iowa lightning rod was lambas lambasted for his joke about everyone should love bacon. Uh, maybe he was talking about turkey bacon, I don't know. But <laughs> Todd, uh, as insensitive a as that remark sounds to some people, does King have a, a point that many in the media missed? His point about China's treatment of its minority population because they either don't recognize humor or they're looking for the opportunity to portray King in a negative light? Well, I mean, I think his past track record has made it difficult for him to comment on stuff like this without people assuming that he's being, you know... Assuming the worst. Hateful, horrible, you know, what, you know, this is, this is where he comes from. Uh, but, you know, I was joking about people being persecuted is probably, I mean, is generally a bad idea. And 
I mean, yeah, the, he, he was making a point, but, you know, we also have the, the, you know, the Trump administration has sort of taken these human rights issues and kind of shelved them somewhere, I mean, in North Korea and in China, in, 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 in favor of trying to get deals, arms deals, trade deals. They're sort of turning a blind eye to this stuff. King has the has the, the record he has, and so I think this whole thing added up to, you know, people sort of looking on this not favorably. Probably a good idea when you're trying to make a serious point, not to crack right. a joke about it. That uh, right, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's step on your own message. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's that time of the year that the kids are back in school, and uh, Thomas. Uh, you recently wrote about the campaign, presidential campaign efforts on Iowa College campuses. Kamala Harris and, and, and Pete Buttigieg, for example, have been active on the campuses. Uh, I had noticed that uh, Kirsten Gillibrand campaign said that they would be ramping up efforts on campuses too. I'm guessing that's probably not going to happen now. But uh, <laughs> uh, is, she may is, still hit the bars. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, why not? <laughs> More than ever. <laughs> Uh, Thomas, <laughs> is this organizing different than from what the campaigns are doing elsewhere? Um, I, I, I would think that college students might be a tougher audience uh, to you know, get their attention than, say, uh, us old people with nothing to do. And, and, you know. <laughs> so, so what's the strategy? Uh, free, free beer and pizza? Well, I mean, it kind of goes back to, you know, Campaigns on college campuses have always kind of been this this whole organizational had this whole organizational effort so that it's always kind of like there's always a rally going on on college campuses. Uh, I, I'm having probably I don't know whether uh, about the rest of you, but I, you know I graduated in college from college in 2016, and during the Iowa caucus, you know during the Iowa caucuses, and uh, I got to see it firsthand and <laughs> experience it, and I. I remember it very distinctly because every time, uh, you know, the candidates don't show up, but you know, the students that are supporting those candidates are holding a rally as if their candidate is showing up, and so they're they're trying to create this enthusiasm uh, for these for these can uh, a lot of these candidates on there that you don't necessarily see as adults, primarily because during the workday, we're we're not going to classes and we're not, you know, uh, going and walking along a quad or something where there's a bunch of tables with different candidates saying, Hey, have you heard about Pete Buttigieg? Come on over here. And let me tell you why he's the candidate you should vote for. By the way, let me get you registered to vote. People aren't uh, stopping us as we're walking to work and trying to register us to vote. And I think that's the major difference between, uh, you know, a regular work a day person and someone on a college campus is that, there's an inherent method to try to get everyone registered to vote with a possible promise to vote for a candidate. Now that promise isn't always kept, but that's kind of the interesting part of, uh, you know, college organizing and college politics unto itself. Um, it's, it's, you know, you have all these students with this, with a wild amount of enthusiasm for whomever their candidate is. And their main goal is just to get everyone around them registered to vote. And then getting those people that are registered to vote to promise to vote for their candidates. As you were talking, I was thinking about uh, during the last uh, U.S. Senate campaign in Iowa, I was on the University of Iowa campus watching a candidate try to engage students. 
Um, I, I would say he was getting about one out of ten, and and he finally kind of saw the <laughs> obvious barrier that you know pretty much ten out of ten students have headphones on or earbuds in and are not paying attention to some guy some guy saying hi can I talk <laughs> to you <laughs> so. <laughs> It's it's a tough gig, Aaron. Uh, in, in 2018, which um, seems so long ago now, you wrote about NextGen, the Tom Steyer financed effort to mobilize young voters. <laughs> Is this pretty much the same thing that the, the campaigns are doing? The same sort of strategy or tactics um, to engage the students? Yeah, I think it's a very, it's a very similar playbook, and that's a good point that you bring up, uh, Jim, when you talk about the candidate being on campus versus these types of organizing when what Thomas is talking about and what we're talking about here is it is it's not the candidate it's not senior staff it's people it's young people it's people college students age or or, or very recent college graduates uh that are set up at these booths so so you're much more likely to be able to engage those students than than that candidate Jim that you just described uh trying to to, to stand up on a podium and speak as if college students don't already hear enough of uh, an older person standing up in front of a bunch of them and talking for an hour at a time. <laughs> so, so you know, it's, it's a little stand and then they give out free root beer floats or, or something like this or some kind of treat and say, just come on and here's a clipboard, just kind of sign your name, we'll get you registered to vote. Um, um, and, and they're pretty effective programs. And Next Gen, which you mentioned, was very successful in 2018. And, and um, uh, there was a boost in young voters and in, in college age voters um, uh, if compared to previous cycles. Um, so it can be an effective strategy with the right organization. Now, now this thing here we're talking about with the caucuses, there's another step. It's the one thing to get someone to say, I'll, I'll vote. That can be hard enough, but at the end of the day, it's still really fairly simple. You don't have to tell them who you're going to vote for just going to promise yeah i'll vote i'll re register me I, I i'll vote now now they're trying to get someone these campaigns are trying to not only do that but convince them that you got a caucus and you got a caucus for our candidate that that that's that's a that's a couple of big steps forward from just getting them to register I find it all pretty amazing because I'm pretty sure that when I was in college, if if the president himself had come to our campus, he probably would have had trouble getting a crowd. So, <laughs> I mean, it would have been like, eh, yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of caucusing, um, the, the Democratic National Committee has sort of dealt a blow to Iowa's virtual caucus, which was a new concept uh, come, they were introducing for 2020 that would allow people who couldn't physically be present at their caucus to participate. Uh, and, and this was in response to the DNC wanting states to open up their processes to more people, uh, in, especially in the case, in, in this case, uh, virtual caucus would allow people with physical disabilities, uh, uh, with work schedules that didn't allow them to come to the caucuses. It would allow them to participate. Uh, I, I think Iowa Democrats were pretty excited about this, uh, felt like they had really you know, taken the initiative and and, and uh, developed a good process, but it now appears that the DNC is saying, like, nope, that's not going to work. They have some concerns about hacking. Uh, Todd, you've been following this. Um, where do we stand now? Um, well, I, the, the, the register in Des Moines, maybe you've heard of it, was reporting <laughs> this morning that that there's that they're preparing to reject this virtual caucus idea, 
as you said, due to these, that they were able to, I think they had people who were able to hack into the system and, and they have some security concerns. And then, you know, and I guess, you know, first you have this practical concern about how do the, how do Iowa Democrats sort of meet this national party directive to sort of increase participation and make it easier. And then the bigger question is if they can't do that or figure out a way, what's that mean for the caucuses going forward? Will, will they continue to be first in the nation? Will they not be? That's sort of the big question. I mean, we've seen threats before, but this one is, you know, maybe a little threatier than, than usual, if that's a word. Uh, so, you know, and then the question becomes, how do you, how do you meet the directive? And, and, you know, people are on Twitter as we speak throwing out all sorts of great ideas that may or may <laughs> not work. Uh, some people are talking about mail-in paper ballots, but then who counts them? How do you count write-ins? How slow is that going to be? When do we find out who won the caucuses? Uh, which the Republicans know can sort of be something people want to know, and, and they don't like it when they have to wait two weeks. Uh, <laughs> and then, they, you know, how do you figure out ranked choices and things like that? So the paper ballots are tough. You know, there are people who are saying, why don't we just have a primary? Well, of course, that means civil war with New Hampshire mm -hmm. because they're the first primary. Their state law says they have to be seven days before any primary, and we'd have to change state law to, to create a primary, which between now and February, I don't think the legislature is going to convene and, and do that. So, you know, maybe they can work this out in a technical way, figure out uh, maybe a I've, – I've heard people talk about a, a sort of a video town hall type thing or maybe a – uh, telephone town hall, but uh, they've, they've got a lot of work to do and a lot of stuff to figure out in a very short amount of time. And the campaigns, which were, al were already sort of working on, you know, they're, you know, showing their supporters how to use the virtual caucus and, and sort of, you know, putting some effort into that now, they're in limbo. What, you know, what's this going to mean for them? One of the, I, I guess, defenses of the virtual caucus that I've heard is that what the DNC tested and, and was able to hack was not as secure as what the, the Iowa Democratic Party yeah. has proposed. And they felt like that it, they weren't really, it wasn't a fair um, uh, um, test of the virtual caucus system. Uh, I don't know if they'll get a, a second chance uh, to demonstrate that or not. Um, and, and I guess, yeah, it, it really seems to kind of be disruptive at this point. I don't know what anybody else is hearing uh, from campaigns or their local parties, um, but I mean, this this would be, could be, I guess, a major blow to, to the Democratic caucuses in 2020. Mm, yeah. Thoughts out there? Uh, Ed, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, I think, Todd got it right. I mean, uh, they uh, uh, the party needs to fairly quickly uh, figure out an alternative here. Um, assuming the DNC um, uh, goes ahead and, and says that no, no, you can't do this. Um, I, I think it's probably also incumbent upon the DNC to uh, uh, to, to be a part of this effort, since it was their requirement that uh, that sort of wrought this this thing in, in the in the beginning. Um, you know, it, it does strike me if if, if they're not going to do a virtual caucus, um, it, it does um, take off the table some of those questions that that some folks have had, like uh, about how you're going to apportion uh, the, uh, the the votes of the people who take part in that. There's been some dissatisfaction with the IDP's plan for that. Uh, I've certainly had questions about how uh, you would factor in the uh, virtual caucus in the reporting of the results. How does the media actually uh, report the results? Is it those who just show up to the um, in-person caucuses or 
in some other way. So, um, you know, it, it, it all sort of depends on, on what the alternative is. And uh, uh, Todd's right. There isn't a whole lot of time to, uh, uh, to, to, to get this done. And I can't imagine what havoc it's playing with the campaigns that are, that are built on, on a system that now has been thrown into doubt. Let me throw out a conspiracy theory that this is really just part of the effort by some states to uh, dislodge Iowa from uh, first in the nation status. Uh, I, that would be I shocking. No, yeah, <laughs> I have no evidence of that, but hey, I think it's just worth throwing out there. Yeah, it's, this, this decisions come from the grassy knoll, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> This is really interesting to me as this plays out because, as you noted, Jim, and to kind of circle back on this and, and summarize this again, this process started with DNC demands. Um, the Iowa Democratic Party has put a lot of work into this, worked with the other early states, especially New Hampshire, uh, on this plan um, to make sure it's something that makes everybody happy, that the DNC has been involved in this from the start they've been kept posted they've been kept appraised of of the process and here we are uh what five months uh from the caucuses and, and, it, and it looks like the dnc is ready to say uh no go back to the drawing board um so it really puts the state party especially um in a really tough place i, I don't know where they go uh from here and 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 in with this short of time left before the caucuses. I mean, that's a ma such a major operation, um, and and now they've got to start from scratch on this plan. Um, and and then, like you noted too, the presidential campaigns have been and been planning um, on this system for a long time, and and now have to sit around and wait to see what the next system is going to look like, and and then figure out how to uh, work with that. So so the the, the timing of it, I. I uh, let me say, and I just saw um, Sue Dvorsky put it <laughs> maybe best here. On, I'm, I'm watching the Twitter machines here as, as we're talking, and Sue Dvorsky said um, she's going to keep her opinions about the DNC decision to herself uh, because if she did talk about it on, on Twitter, she'd have to use a lot of asterisks uh, to fill in some blanks. So I, 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 I don't think like she kept her opinion really to herself. <laughs> Well, that's good, you know. But maybe there is a strategy here. I mean, if if the Russians are listening, perhaps they have a solution. Perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope it's been worth your time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. And fan mail may be sent to oniowapolitics at gmail.com. And you can find us every week on the homepages of the Quad City Times, the Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Rhythm City will take us out today. And if you know a band or talented Iowa musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file. And remember to follow us on Twitter and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. For Thomas, Ed, Aaron, Brett, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening.